This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selection reflects the best contemporary photography for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. The legendary photographer Gary Winogrand once said, I have a burning desire to see what things look like photographed by me. He understood that making a photograph is a very personal thing. Photographers make different choices, resulting in images that, at their best, express not only a style, but a point of view. Arturo Soto's photographs possess that quality. It's obvious when he photographs the most ordinary urban scenes. They are scenes that many would dismiss, but that he transforms into something special. Even though many of the images don't include people, the photographs are as much about the presence of people and their impact on the environment as any traditional street photograph could be. Every photographer chooses what they deem worthy of a photograph. Arturo's work inspires me to reconsider my part of the world and its worthiness in being transformed into a great photograph. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, welcome to The Candid Frame. Really good to have you. Your work has uh, really been interesting for me. The way you see urban spaces is very unique, and I find it very fascinating because it, it's I see reflected in your work a lot of, of what I have experienced myself in exploring different cities and towns um, all over the world. And you have an interesting word that you use to sort of describe it. Could you tell us the word and share your definition of it with us? Uh, do you mean infraordinary? That's it. Infraordinary. That's a, a word coined by a French writer named Georges Perec. And uh, he came up with that term to describe what he calls what happens when nothing happens, which is a wonderful way of thinking about mm. uh, everyday life. And so he was very adamant on finding a language to describe small things that most people don't think as very important, but that still have right. an impact again on, on, on everyday life and how we... Um, how we perceive different kinds of spaces. Yeah, I love that. I love that term and that definition because it speaks to me as a street photographer, since I'm photographing in, in public spaces a lot. And some of my images sort of highlight things that I think most people are ignoring or can't even see. So for me, part of the fun is making those discoveries. People may become an element in the photograph, but, is, but it isn't always necessary. Did you find that that sort of approach is what you were drawn to initially, or did you come to that after some exploration of other types of photography? Oh, that's a, I love that question. 
because yes, I I was very interested in let's say traditional street photography when I started when I when I was doing my BFA at the Savannah College of Art and Design. That you know, I, I was very influenced by Cartier-Bresson and later by Gary Winogrand, and I wanted to make those kinds of pictures. And for many years, I did, or at least I tried. And obviously, those are about you know apprehending some kind of action in the street. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And, and and being very attentive to um, what Cartier-Bresson called a decisive moment. One one of the problems that I ran into was that you know people like like Gary Winogrand they were photographing in in New York or or in LA, and I was in Savannah, Georgia, and so I it was hard encountering the same amount of of, of things happening on the street on an everyday basis for me to produce those works. Mm-hmm. I was I was out on the streets trying to find these things. And what ended up happening is that, you know, I started paying more and more attention to architecture. And so architecture became very important as a way of speaking about the identity of a place and also kind of my feelings towards that place. Right. So almost inevitably making pictures of things happening in a, in the spur of the moment kind of took a back seat I'm still interested in it. I don't do it that often, but now, you know, I started basically paying attention to other things uh, that had more to do with the environment, with the urban environment. One of the things that comes up for me, and I think about it a lot when it comes to this genre of photography, is how these spaces are used and how they're developed to to begin with. I've been to uh, Ponce, Puerto Rico. The center of town is so beautiful. You know, they have this green area. They have... storefronts that surround it and you can see that that space really was sort of the heart of the community there was the commercial the restaurants and their barber shops and you know this is about maybe 10 years ago but i was imagining how this place must have been used and experienced maybe 50 100 years ago that idea of building building a space for the purpose of community i think is something that's kind of lost now most of it is driven by commercial interests, you know, and they're and they're selling convenience, affordability, a certain sense of security, but not necessarily community. Right. So I, I, you're right. you've, you've traveled. I see that in in your work. I see hints of that sort of objective of seeing it in that different way, where you're seeing both its function, but also its personality and how it how the city serves the people that live and work there. And that's a lot That's a lot to do when all you have is a static element, right? So tell me about developing that eye to be able to recognize that, that something was worthy of your attention as a photographer, but that also that it, it spoke to you in that, in that way. Well, I, I think you described it very interestingly in terms of community. Uh, the other big word that I would use is, you know, the identity of a place, uh, and they're obviously interrelated. So it's about what makes a particular place, you know, different from others. Um, and obviously, it's getting harder and harder to get at that uh, with um, multinational brands and, and, and other aspects of globalization. And so, you know, one of the one of the things that I early on understood that was important 
for the identity of a place was vernacular architecture. And so I always tend to pay attention to buildings that are not necessarily built with the cachet of, of um, authorial architecture, but that are, that are let's say, buildings whose aims are more modest, but that on the other hand, they show a bit of the history or the identity of that place. And the other thing that I'm very interested that also ties in with, with vernacular architecture is um, street signage. You know, usually the way that, mm-hmm. that things get communicated via signs, you know, advertisements, street signs, d- different kinds of graffiti, um, they become very telling about the culture there. And so, but, but you're right in that the challenge is trying to make those pictures interesting because you, you need for, for starters to give visual variety in terms of composition and color and all of those formats right. to, to pictures that are more or less the same, or at least they're made within a very narrow mixture of elements, you know? Yeah. You know, your images, whether they were shot in Panama or in Oxford or, you know, Juarez or wherever you, you've gone, there are two ways that are where it's typically seen. One is by, you know, the outsider, the photographer who comes to visit this place and experience it, and the people who live there and how they use the use the space. And it's, and so for me, I, the, the challenge has always been, how do I make these photographs so that they are more than just documenting what's there? Because right? I think, and some of your images sort of... Um, suggest the role of that space over a period of time. Like, for example, the way certain storefronts have been repurposed multiple times. It's not like they've knocked down a building and put a new one in. Or you're juxtaposing old and new together so that you're sort of exploring time and usage. But when you go out and shoot, are those things that sort of the the forefront of your mind? Or or are you practicing much like a street photographer and, and you just find something and then you take it from there? Uh, a little both, actually. I rely on intuition very much in that, you know, I shoot what catches my interest, but it's always with some sort of purpose in mind. And it, it's in trying to establish, uh, and I use this term very loosely, a sort of narrative in the, in the sense that, yeah. you know, I know that these pictures will be, used uh, serially so i don't need to say for instance all i want to say with just one picture so i'm trying to see right. what i already have what i've already made and how that will be in dialogue with uh, these new pictures that i'm making but i'm also trying usually to um go go by a certain feeling of a place that i have so with panama for instance i i had very conflicting feelings about the place because I kind of wasn't finding most of the things that I like, which is, you know, culture and, and art. And, and, and on the other hand, I was, I was finding uh, how the city paid a huge amount of attention to commerce and to money. And so I was trying to find things mm-hmm. that spoke about that. But, you know, still, let's say, by, by, by letting myself just explore the, the, the the place. So it's not like I have a shooting list and I'm trying to like illustrate 
point. Right. But obviously, if I have an idea that speaks to, you know, a particular use of a of a space in relation to money or commerce or something, I would I would gravitate towards making a picture of that place. Like for the work that you did in pa Panama, it was reflecting not just on what the the city looks like, but the you know the history of of various empires trying to make that city their their own, and the of course the American occupation of of it, and then the building and the control of the 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 canal. All of that has informed how that city has taken shape and how it's changed. And to my thinking, there's so much there, right? And if it's too much, then all you have is just a lot of pictures. So talk to me about discovering and refining the idea, the intent behind the photographs. Uh, yeah, so so the what I basically, you know, realized at some point, and, and of course, this is going to sound obvious as soon as I say it, but is that pictures have a huge symbolic potential. And so it's not only about what they depict literally, but it's about mm -hmm. the ideas that you can kind of um, make emerge um, with how the pictures are used in conjunction with other pictures, with the framing. And so I try to focus on a lot of things that are already symbolic for the Panamanians, such as the canal, which is a picture that the book opens with. But I just wanted to use that picture, for instance, as a starting point, kind of to say, well, a lot of people think about Panama and then immediately they think of the canal. You know, the canal is a bit separate from the city. Um, so it's not like you mm -hmm. come across the canal every single moment of your day. Um, and so I try to... I don't know how to say this. I try to um, delve into all of these things that are more mundane and that actually define my everyday experience of Panama, such as, for instance, the different kinds of architecture, how those buildings are influenced by the climate, which is very humid there. And so you have older buildings that are, you know, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, which have a very particular style, which is, you know, kind of uh, similar across Central America. And then you have uh, these high rises, which came as a result of the economic boom once the canal was handed over back to the Panamanians. So right. these different kinds of architecture did influence my everyday experience of the city. Then you have things like symbols that you come across. So for instance, there's a car replay, uh, sorry, a car repair uh, shop that incorporates the the Fourth of July into its name, and you know the Fourth of July, it's it's obviously an American holiday. It it, it speaks a lot yeah. about the U.S. presence in Panama. So it's not like every country in Latin America will have a shop <laughs> named after a major American holiday. Um, but but of course, what happens with these things is that. Often they're just too obvious, right? Because you know, to the people there, right? No exactly. There. Mm -hmm. And 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 the symbolism has ceased to be interesting, let's say. But when you kind of focus on 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 this symbol here and that symbol there, and again you put them together, then you can start speaking about you know the the how con conflictive the recent history has been and how present it still is and how it informs you know the 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 current conditions of the urban landscape yeah when beginning a a project there's there's an idea 
and which leads and serves as the impetus to create the to create the images. But as the work progresses and you spend more time, the photographs reveal their own meaning to you. So for you, do you discover that as you are shooting or does it come to you as a result of deciding to edit the photograph and, and separating, parsing them, comparing them? You know, when, when does that happen for you? It happens more in the editing because it's easy to sometimes fall in love with an image and you love it for different reasons. You love it because it was very yeah. hard to make, you know, it was hard to get to that place right. or, or, or somehow the, the lighting conditions were great and you just made a bunch of pictures there and they look very interesting. But again, just sorry, sorry to insist too much on this, but you know, it has to do with uh, how those pictures are going to be in dialogue with the other ones. And so that's when you sometimes discover that, X picture that maybe doesn't really work on its own actually brings a lot to to the table um, once once it's in a sequence and so you kind of have to reevaluate what's worthy let's say of each photograph. Right, in your upbringing, you came up living uh, on the border between Mexico and the United States. It was at a time where there was access to either side was not as restrictive as it is now. There was commerce, there was all this stuff that was happening in these these two towns that have, have pretty much butted up against each other. Um, they, they created their own economic and social dynamic. How did growing up with being able to basically go back and forth between two worlds make, what kind of impression did that make on you that you think has influenced what you do as a photographer? Um, I should make a small clarification. I, I, I wasn't, I have never lived in, in, in Juarez. My father is from there. And so he wanted me to be born there. And so I was born in Juarez, but I oh. always lived in Mexico city. Uh, but what happened, oh, that, okay. um, I always grew up listening to his stories about the place and we would go basically almost every chance we got for, uh, for the holidays. Right. So I spent I spent a lot of time there growing up, and having this this experience of of uh, the Mexican side and the American side. And so when I was doing my my PhD at Oxford, which is practice based, which means that you have to you know make work, I wanted to look into the relationship between text and image, and how text informs images in different ways. And one of those projects okay. was uh, the one that you're referring to, which is called Border Documents. And so I, I collaborated with my father to make a sort of biography of his experience of Juarez. And, um, and so first, you know, I kind of like compiled a lot of stories, uh, some really well known in my, in my family, you know, about, about mm -hmm. his growing up there. Then I kind of shaped narratively those those stories so that they were like little fragments almost you know they're each story is about a paragraph long and, and and then i went with him to photograph where those stories had taken place so um he was he was next to me while i was making those pictures and he was telling me you know it's in this corner or it's in that street and so a lot of these stories like you mentioned they describe a different era in which the border was a different place. It was more open. It was also more interesting. It was less dangerous. Mm -hmm. it, 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 one of the things that I wanted to kind of impress on 
or, or, or through that work is that progress doesn't come to every place in the same way and that things don't always get better. Sometimes, you know, they were good and they just got worse. And so that happened basically in Juarez when at the end of the 90s, sorry, at the, at the, at the, in the mid-90s, Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. signed a commercial treaty called NAFTA. Once that happened, uh, the manufacturing industry uh, kind of exploded in Juarez because they wanted to take advantage of the cheap labor there. And um, mm -hmm. that came with a number of consequences. One of them was that there weren't that many workers in Juarez. And so they had to basically import workers or, 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 or um, bring them from the southern states and there also wasn't, yeah. you know, enough infrastructure in the city. And so a lot of shanty towns started um, being created without the proper infrastructure. And then, you know, a few years after that, that brought with it a lot of violence, a lot of corruption. Uh, there was too much money flowing into, into Juarez. And involved in this was also the drug trafficking industry. And I, I'm sorry that I'm taking too long to answer this, but... No, um, take your so time. And so basically the situation in terms of violence got worse and worse and worse. And um, around 2007, 2008, Juarez was the most violent city in, on the planet that was not at war. You know, uh, basically the other place was Afghanistan at that point. And so the, the murders and the, and the violence on the street was out of the charts. The international press was mostly reporting this. At the same time, I had my family there who, as, as happens in, in, in any place of conflict, they still had to survive and, and lead you know, their lives. And so it, there was this contrast in between what was being represented by the media and what I knew was also happening in the city. Right. And so with this work, I wanted to speak about other things that happened that have to do more with the unique conditions of the border, everyday life, uh, personal experiences, and how these can kind of like also take seed in places uh, across both cities. And so uh, the pictures were made both in Juarez and in El Paso. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to tell where's where because they're actually not that different. Yeah, I looked at your pictures and I thought a lot about Los Angeles, where I live, in terms of how parts of the city have been designed or repurposed. There was, it was, there was a time when there was just a lot of repurposing. Buildings weren't struck, struck down in order to build something new. And you see that a lot, like in South LA or East LA, or, you know, some of uh, less affluent communities. But if you, the more West you go, what you, what I saw and why, what I experienced is that any sort of buildings or infrastructure were just completely wiped away. That there wasn't really a preciousness about the history. And largely the construction was built around creating places for, for commerce. And I think that's really the way that cities seem to be designed now. You know, the whole idea is it's there to serve the, the commercial aspects. And the kind of community that we're speaking of with this kind of work is is not does, doesn't come easily, even if it may come into existence. So 
when when you're making the you know, making these photographs, I can understand that you're you're not you're you're trying to explore it in an interesting way and reveal it to the the viewer. Tell me about just about those moments where you wonder, am I doing this right? Because especially when you're working on a project for an extended period of time with a subject matter that is challenging to render in photographs, you know, what, what do you do to sort of sustain yourself, whether you're working on this for six months or two years? Um, I'll try to answer that in two parts. So the first one is that I am very interested in how to communicate my emotions towards a place um, <clears throat> that involves selecting certain buildings that you know may maybe can be interpreted effectively or emotionally. The the other thing I'll have to say is that you know I, I one of my earlier projects was a typology, and I I stopped doing typologies after that because I I felt that they were too restrictive, and for me what's very important is to photograph a scene so that the viewer kind of has to figure out why I made that photograph. With a typology, if you're photographing, I don't know, benches in every in every photograph, you know, the, the photographs can be very complex and very interesting, but at the very least, you understand that, you know, the next photograph is made because it has a bench, right? Same as the one right. prior and same as the next one. So you don't have to figure that out as a viewer, you know, it's about benches and then it can be about other things, obviously. But but with some of the pictures that I like, you don't really know. And sometimes um, it becomes that that becomes a bit of a puzzle. That's something that I kind of learned from a few photographers that I admire, like uh, Michael Schmidt, John Gossage, Joel Sternfeld. As you can as you can see, I've been mostly influenced by American photographers and not necessarily by Latin American photographers. But so having said that, you know, I would I would often make photographs that I thought had that seed or that possibility of being interpreted emotionally. And then I realized that people sometimes didn't. Sometimes they did, but sometimes they didn't. And so I after a while I wanted to also make work that was a bit different. And that's when I realized that I wanted to incorporate text into the projects because text is a way of making those emotions more clear or more direct. And so the project that I just described, for instance, border documents, you know, by having that experience of my father, which is a mini story, basically, you now have a play of temporalities because obviously the story is in the past and the, the picture now is in the past too, but it's at least mm -hmm. a lot more recent than the story. These are stories that took place in the mostly 50s, 60s, and 70s. You now have also something else to anchor some of the elements that you see in the picture. So in some of the photographs of that series, uh, there is a correspondence between the text and the image. In other words, in, in one that comes to mind, um, he's talking about um, a convenience store that he worked in, and you can see that convenience store in the photograph. Now, now it, it, it's, it's been closed down, but the, um, the signage is still there. But in some others, you know, maybe he's describing a house and the house is not there anymore. So then you have to wonder what happened. You wonder about the passage of time, how cities change, how places evolve. And that is that 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 often involves feeling certain things 
towards these places that are very banal. With inflation on the rise and other financial challenges, things are tough. Here at the Porello household, we've had to ask whether a purchasing decision is inspired by need or by want. You can surprise yourself with what's critical and what can wait. However, that doesn't mean that life has to be divorced from pleasure and inspiration. Books provide me that, and they also provide me a welcome escape from the endless bad news spewed from my television, radio, or internet browser. Every book I receive through my membership in the Charcoal Book Club provides a beautiful respite from the world's noise. These well-designed books with great photographs provide me moments of pleasure every time I turn the page. I believe that you can have that too. Whether you're just starting your collection or have had one for years, I want to encourage you to subscribe to the Charcoal Book Club. Their selections are awesome and they've introduced me to photographers I would never have heard of otherwise. You'll enjoy a great new title every month when you become a Charcoal Book Club member. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another one of similar value. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And we can always do with your financial support, especially if you enjoy and appreciate the work that we do here at The Candid Frame. Each episode requires time, effort, and resources, and your donations help us to make the show possible. I know that everyone can't help, but if you can, why not take the time today if you can? You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candor frame. Thank you so much for your continued support. When I saw, um, I saw Walker Evans exhibit when I was in Paris, which was, you were seeing images throughout his career. And you can see when he went through that phase where he was photographing the signage and, and the space. And from my perspective, that was like decades ago. But I, I like the fact that I experienced it. I wasn't just looking at the, the photograph, but I was experiencing the transition of, of time. And photographs sort of ripen, especially photographs like this over time. Time is absolutely an important ingredient of there of that and sometimes you're able to capture it within the frame and you can see that set transition of time or that conflict of time is that because i can see through your photographs that in terms of how they can com compose they're very thoughtful but about this sort of this other thing about being able to leverage time how do you sort of figure that figure that out so that can it be so that it can be part of the the picture and hopefully resonate not more than just visually. Um, well, certainly, you know, being aware of Walker Evans's work helped um, because he he tried to um, date the photographs often with cars, for instance. 
So the car becomes the sign mm-hmm. of the time. Uh, may, maybe the building uh, on the background, it's, it's not necessarily that, that easy to place, but if there's a car or if there's a movie poster or something like that, then it becomes like, like you mentioned, like a play of temporalities. And so I, that idea I, I certainly got from him. And so I, I am mindful of how different elements in the photograph might interplay in terms of um, how they speak of their time. In the same way, I sometimes try, hopefully without being too heavy-handed, to incorporate political aspects of the places where I'm photographing, either historical aspects or or more of the of the present. Uh, like, for instance, in in the Oxford work, uh, I wanted to show the scope of the political of the political parties and and interests in Oxford, and so the the signs of the different political parties or movements come up in the sequence or other signs like, you know, the, the A of the anarchists in a circle is in one of the pictures. And so all of those signs are hopefully there to speak of a particular time. So, you know, you studied in Oxford, but you were, you were an outsider, a visitor. You see and experience the city in a much different way than than anyone who's living living there. How did that help or hinder you know, your efforts to do what you did with that with that with that project? In well, Oxford is a complicated city, as as are many of these very touristic cities, in that they are photographed every single day by thousands of people. What ends up happening is that most people photograph the same things, which are beautiful. That's why they photograph them. <laughs> and so they, they make very satisfying images. But unfortunately, if you photograph the same things, you're not really going to bring something new to, to the table or to the discourse. And then the challenge becomes, if you're interested in cities like I am, so what do you photograph? Uh, and so it, 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 the challenge becomes finding a different angle. And that usually means photographing things that are obvious for most people, but that have certain aesthetic value or sociopolitical value, um, and that you feel that you can say something by by putting them together in a, in a sequence. And so what I did was that I photographed with a Hasselblad, so in a, in a square format, parts of buildings of the university, which is what makes Oxford famous, and then but, but but always parts that weren't the obvious sites that that the tourists see, and then with um, but, with a six by nine, I photographed places that are outside of the city center. Why did you make that choice rather than shooting in the same format? Because usually the the university and everything that comes with it in Oxford is is set in a hierarchy against the the rest of the city. And I, I wanted to create a difference, but not a hierarchy, or if anything, reverse okay. the hierarchy. So there's many more pictures of the city center and in a format that is wider um, and, and even potentially more attractive, whereas the pictures of the university, because they're square, most of them are details, they feel very, um, what's it called, what's that word, um, for when you're in a tight space, um, Claustrophobic? Claustrophobic. Um, so they feel a bit claustrophobic. They feel a bit 
that there that there's that there's a particular kind of social weight to them, whereas the other ones are freer. Right. Um, and and um, I, I I I thought that that dichotomy uh, would work well visually, also to give some variations in terms of layout to the book. Uh, so I was already thinking about making a book while I was shooting the pictures. And so in the book, I, I feel like those two different formats allow for a more dynamic layout. Yeah. And I want to return to this because I think it's really important. It's like when any of us go to a new place, it's new. It You know, our synapses are firing, you know, every second. And if you're not too careful, you're shooting everything. Right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have captured anybody's experience or yours. It just means that you just made a lot of pictures that excited you in that moment. I think when you're working on something like this, you have to sort of trust your instincts about it and say, I, I may not completely understand it right now, but that's okay. I can just, I'll just keep, keep shooting. Did you experience something like that on, on this project? Uh, yes. I mean, I lived there for five years, so I didn't shoot every day. I, I, I would go on like, let's say, shooting trips or shooting walks. So, so those, those were like very, let's say, intense moments of photographing. And that also meant that I see it almost like, um, you know, when, when there's a World Cup, there's like an album for the World Cup. And so you buy, mm -hmm. you buy these cards and, you know, little by little, you're like, well, I have that one. I have that one. I have that one. And you're, you become more mindful of what you already have, what you've already achieved in this case. When I begin a project like that, I am shooting a lot and I am, everything seems like a possibility basically. But after a while, you know, you become more selective. You're like, well, you know, I, I've, I've done a street that looks fairly similar to this one or, or a, you know, a tree in the middle of the road that is fairly similar to the one that I have. And so you become more selective and, and, and therefore the wonderful thing that happens is that you start realizing why you're shooting what you're shooting, you know, like there, there's, there's kind of like underlying reasons that become more obvious yeah. once, once you've shot for a, an extended period, a place. So when you are being educated in London, you, you know, you had the experience of studying and being a student in Mexico and going to Oxford. And I think you were, uh, do you think you said Boston? Was the other place or in the United States? Oh, no, Savannah. Savannah. Savannah, excuse me. Each place is very different in terms to the way you see it, the, the, the communities. How does that inform your, your process? Because you've had a variety of different experiences where you're not just going to someplace just for the sake of making photographs. You are exploring, you know, ideas and themes uh, over and over again. How does that help shape what you do? Well, I, I usually photograph where I'm living and the places where I've lived, m most of them are tied to the places where I've studied. And so that means that I've been there mm. for at least, at the very least, a year, which is, you know, I, I lived a year in London. All the other places I've lived more than a year. Photography is a, is a great tool to explore a place. And it's, you know, through this exploration that sometimes it emerges more clearly what you're trying to say. But... 
I am a big believer in in shooting where you're at because there's always something interesting where you're at. Right. The, the the one project that is not like that is uh, the Juarez project, but you know, I I felt. I didn't feel a problem shooting there because I was born there and I've been going there all my life. I just never lived there. But and 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 because because of the way that that project was set up, which was you know making photographs where this where the stories that my my father had told me uh, had happened, it was a more or less you know a preconceived project, like a, a more conceptual project if you want. And so I I was able to make those pictures um, in about a month. But all the other all the other projects are more about discovering the city and different aspects of the city. The, 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 the first thing or well, the first challenge is going against the grain in terms of the kinds of images that most people make of those places. It's almost like you're reacting against the visual cliches associated with a city. Yeah. You're producing these, these books for each of these projects. Is part of your process having a project? Is that an essential way for you to work rather than just shooting just for the joy of shooting? So because I did both, because when I, I was studying in Savannah, I, I shot a lot. I always had a camera with me. Um, when I traveled, I had a camera with me. So I did that for many years, for about eight years. That was very fulfilling in the sense of finding images and making images, but it wasn't as fulfilling in bringing or finding some sort of um, purpose to those images. So at some point I just switched gears and, I, and, and, and that's when I started basically just shooting in the places where I lived. Um, because as much as I enjoy shooting just for the pleasure of shooting, it's sometimes hard again to, to make something with those images, to, to find some sort of a connecting thread or, or something that feels, at least for me, that feels deeper, um, some sort of um, more complex discourse. What does the word home mean to you now? Uh, well, I'm, I'm back in Mexico City at this point. And what happened was that I've made pictures of Mexico City for the longest time, but usually not in the neighborhood where I live, always in other parts of the city. Hmm. I basically couldn't see the place where I lived as uh, you know, a potential subject for photographs. And what happened to me after coming back from Oxford was that because because I couldn't travel uh, because of you know money problems basically I couldn't travel that often from Oxford to Mexico I just traveled once I hadn't been here in 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 almost four years and so coming back I was like you know I cannot believe that I haven't explored photographically this area <laughs> before and so for the past two years I've been making pictures just around the neighborhood, like, you know, I, 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 basically around a 10 minute walk from my house. And yeah, I, ho I, I hope to finish that project um, uh, soon or soonish. But but yeah, it's it's almost like I couldn't see, which is kind of like what I want to say. Sometimes you have things so close to you. And so uh, I, I, I guess my, my way of responding to your question is home is sometimes, you know, the things that you cannot see because they're they're too close to your hard they're to close yeah physically and so you sometimes need some distance to see um to see the familiar to see the things you know that you care about yeah and especially if you live in a place long enough when you see some of those things change they get demolished 
replaced with something else. And that connection that you have to home, all of a sudden that element becomes so important, but it's as a result of the, the loss of it. And photographing places that are close to you is always the most difficult challenge because you are used to seeing those things every day and assigning it a, a value or a function that if I were to go to where you are, I would prop, I would definitely produce very different photographs than you because everything is so exciting and new to me, but you know, and seeing to seeing your work, I can see why one, it was difficult, but also why it's so gratifying because there are some of those shots where I've experienced that that it's something about this this street that I'm on in South LA or East LA or downtown that makes me see it and go, yeah, that's that's my LA and make a picture of it because it comes from that place where it go. It's not just that this is just a chair or whatever it is. It reflects my my ownership of the city. And I see you nodding your head. Our, our guests can't can't see that, but I see that it resonates with you. Well, you're right. I think I think you said it beautifully when you said it's about assigning a value. And so, unfortunately, with the urban landscape in general, and even more so, maybe with places that you're very familiar with, um, you don't see the value because you take the value for granted. Mm-hmm. One way of understanding the value of things, of spaces, of places, is through photography. Because in, in a way, you're trying to subvert the opinion that most people have about a thing, you know, or a place. And and, and, and and particularly if it's a place that it's not very spectacular or it's a place that it's even ugly. I remember once someone saying, why do you like so many ugly places? <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't respond in that moment, as tends to happen. But I had my response, you know, later, which is that I don't find them ugly. <laughs> I find them interesting. They, That's right. they can be for most people, they could be classified as ugly. And I would just say that they're not conventionally beautiful, but there's a certain beauty to them. The beauty can be in the colors, the beauty can be in a particular moment when the light hits that that spot in a in a particular way. But but there's definitely something aesthetic. That, that caught my eye and, and, and photography is a way of capturing that. So yeah, I guess my response is that, you know, I don't find them ugly. Yeah, I, I, we're, we're sitting in the same pew in the same church. <laughs> you know, it's exactly that, it's exactly that way. Uh, people have asked me what, what I'm taking a picture of and I tell them and they just they don't understand because they're not seeing it the same way that I, that I am. And that's fine. You know, I know. I know what I'm enjoying, enjoying about the, the experience. So I went to Guadalajara some years ago. A friend was having a, a, a workshop there, and I really loved it. I, I, I would love to get back to, to Mexico because I think it just holds a, a world that I know I would be fascinated uh, about. But one of the things that struck me in Guadalajara was the photographic community, which seems to be really strong. Um, are you part of that at all in in Mexico City? To be honest, I'm not because you know. On the one hand, I've had the the, the privilege and the opportunity to live and study in different places, but as a consequence of that, mm-hmm. it's meant that I haven't. I've lived here, you know, on and off, and so um, most people build those communities when they're studying, 
And, you know, in that sense, I know people from other places, but weirdly not that many here. And so, no, I, I, I feel like a bit of a, a foreigner in the photo community here in, um, in Mexico. So have, it, have they seen, have some of the people seen your work? What's, what's their response to it, especially if you're, you know, photographing parts of the, your community there in Mexico City or elsewhere where they have been beyond the, you know, them saying they're good or bad photographs in terms of their reaction to what you're trying to co communicate in terms of the idea. So one of the things that has happened was that because I studied in the U.S. for, for my undergraduate degree, I, I was basically influenced by American photographers and particularly the new topographics. The new topographics kind of changed my life <laughs> when I when I yeah. became you know aware of that style and of those photographers. I was like, you know, yeah, this is the stuff that I love, and and mm. for various reasons that I can you know get back to later, the new topographic didn't have much impact here in Mexico. Uh, you know, in the eighties, the the generation of Cindy Sherman and others, the, the, the pictures generation had, yeah. for instance, a, a huge influence. And so stage photography became a huge thing here in the early 90s. But a way of photographing uh, like, like that of um, Stephen Shore and, um, and others, you know, never caught on. And so what happens basically is that there's not that many people interested in the kind of work that I do here in Mexico City. Mm. love work that is very diaristic in nature. Um, they love work that is that captures uh, in a more documentary way the indigenous people here. And, and they also love like, you know, work that is like truly conceptual, um, which I also like obviously as a viewer, but that's not the work that I'm making. And so, no, I haven't found a big echo here in Mexico. As opposed to, let's say, I just had a show, well, not just, but... Uh, late last year, I had a show in Savannah, and I was able to even show some of the work that I made there, and I really enjoyed it. And and um, I had several people come to me saying that you know that they enjoyed the show, and so that always feels great because that means you know someone's basically paying attention. But no, I haven't had that same experience here. Is is uh, is your community largely built of people who you went to school with? Yeah. In terms of. The photographic world? Yeah. Yeah. Different people that I went to school with in different places. So how, why, why is that important? Um, Rather than just working all by yourself and not really connecting with anyone? No, no. Connecting with people is hugely important. Um, I have, uh, you know, a couple of uh, American friends uh, that I didn't go to school with, but that I made later in life that, you know, they give me feedback. Um, I also give them feedback. And it's it's good to you know to um, use each other as a sounding board for the projects that we're working on. Then I started recently uh, writing photo reviews of of, um, of photo books, and so that has put me in touch with other people. In that sense, I think uh, my interest in, in in making or or expanding my community are definitely there. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be and why? I hope you indulge me with this, but I'll mention two people. So the first okay. one would be 
and I'm sure a lot of listeners don't really know about this, but the the one of the photographers that changed my life after I finished uh, my MFA in photography was Moira Davy. She's a mm. Canadian photographer living in um, in New York. She incorporates a lot of writing into her work, and so and she focuses, or at least she used to more, on on really banal things. Uh, she loves photographing her house, for instance. And she focuses on like her her old books, uh, even the dust that accumulates underneath her bed, and so they're like very unphotographic things often. But she has a fantastic way of making them work through the magic of photography, but also by giving an additional context on why these things are important to her, and that comes via the writing. So she definitely changed my my life. Uh, with her retrospective catalog that she put out uh, after a show she had in at the Harvard Museum of Art um, or, or one of the museums there. And the other person would be uh, one of the friends that I just spoke about, which is um, an American photographer that lives in in South America uh, named Thomas Locke Hobbs. We, we share many interests in the urban landscape, but, you know, I love uh, his sense of framing, I, I really admire the fact that he dedicates years and years to photographing certain subjects. And so I recommend people uh, look at his work. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you for sharing your work with me. I, I really enjoy it. And it's inspiring me to see my world just a little differently. So thank you for that. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And thank you very much for having me here. Thanks to Arturo for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting Arturo-Soto.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you have different ways to support us. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And you can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Rob Gormley and John Tetty for their recent generous contributions. And if you can't find every episode of our show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.